Michael's Lutheran background is showing. If you're not familiar with that song that uh, was written by Martin Luther in the 1500s, which explains the hard English. Um, also, you sang an earlier song um, in which it talked about Ebenezer. It's not talking about Ebenezer Scrooge, by the way. Um, it's the Hebrew word Ebenezer, and it, it's the concept of uh, raising up a monument or a pile of stones. So when he says, here I raise my Ebenezer, it's talking about putting up a pile of stones as a marker to say, this is a stake in my life. Well, we're going to go into Exodus this morning, and um, I would tell you that there is so much going on theologically, we need to get right to it. It's a terribly embarrassing passage in Scripture. Exodus chapter 32, if you're not there yet, that's where we're going to be going. The, the capacity for humans to totally ignore God just kind of drips off the pages here. Before we pray, I want to step into that with prayer with you, but I want to give you an anchor verse for first. It comes from 1 Corinthians 10:11. This is what it says. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for every single soul who occupies a seat in this auditorium or is streaming the broadcast right now. I know every single soul is precious to you. And I pray specifically, God, that you would put your blessing on these individuals who have taken the time to examine your word today, to know who we are before you and who you are to us and how we should respond to that. So I pray that you would guide us now in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, Amen. Up on Mount Sinai, Moses has been invited to join 70 elders to have a feast before God. And so they do, and they see some things that are described in this very verse I'm going to put up on the screen for you. It says in Exodus 24, verse 9, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet... There appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. I would love to go into that with you, but I can't right now. Verse 11, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. And then Moses and Joshua remained behind. And the 70 leaders go back down the mountain, and they tell everybody waiting at the base of the mountain, which is the nation of Israel, Moses is going to catch up with us soon. And they didn't know how soon would be. And then God invites Moses back into his presence, which is verse 12 of chapter 24. Now the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And God begins instructing Moses on what it's supposed to look like when we approach God. And he gets very specific. And he gives all kinds of detail, right down to what kind of thread they're supposed to use for building the tabernacle and pomegranates on top of the pillars and how they're supposed to worship him. And it's in this very same setting that Moses learns the sacred rituals for anointing his brother Aaron as high priest. It's the ultimate mountaintop experience. And God's going to personally reveal his will to Moses regarding how people are supposed to approach him. So chapter 24 to chapter 31 become this astonishing picture of how detailed God is. 
The book of Hebrews actually talks about these things that God tells Moses to build. They're actually a carbon copy of things that are in heaven. And so we get a glimpse of some of the details of heaven just by reading these passages. But what's most astonishing to me as you read this is the contrast. While God is showing Moses all of this detail and being very specific, down at the base of the mountain, it's absolute anarchy. It's completely the opposite. So when we come to chapter 32 and it opens, Moses and Joshua have been gone for more than a month, which no one expected, and the people are becoming restless and they're getting tired of waiting. And we find that from 24 verse 18, Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So the people start having doubts, doubts about Moses and doubts about God. And their doubts turn to murmuring, and the murmuring turns to complaining, and they decide that they want to go in a new direction. So they find Aaron because they've got some ideas on how they want the worship service to look in the future. So they hunt him down, and they give him some ideas. Stunning. What is being described on the mountain is holy, and it's awesome. But what's happening back at the camp is chaos. And the people don't understand that God's got this going on in the background, that He's got a plan for them for their future, yet they're going totally out of control. Verse 1, chapter 32 starts this way. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. You, you almost can't even believe you read that. Now, obviously, of the, of the many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands who came with Moses out of Egypt, it's really difficult to know how many are doing this or who's doing this. Who's developed this attitude? Now, certainly, you would never expect the 70 that you just read about, the elders who went up on the mountain and, and saw the underside of God's feet and this blue sapphire. You would never expect them to be part of this group. But the remarkable thing is nobody's speaking up. And we're reminded again of this principle, without quality leadership, people fail. Why is no one taking a moment to speak up is a complete mystery. And it's absolutely compounded to be shocking because they just went through the Mount Sinai experience where they heard the thunder and they experienced the earthquake and they saw the smoke and it had only been 40 days earlier. But we're reminded that the hardest time for humans is when humans are waiting. The hardest time to remain true is when we have to wait for something because we're so impatient. Now, everyone who's in this series of events, everybody you're about to read about this morning has grown up in Egypt, which means they came out of this system, this religious system, which was dedicated to pagan worship, which is really different from the thing that God has called them to. Yahweh has said, you will not have idols. You will not worship things like that. And these anti-idol demands of this Yahweh, in which He made a covenant with them, is messing with their mind. And we also, we also have to remember that it's not just Israelites that are in this setting, that other ethnic groups have joined them. Other ethnic groups came out of Egypt. Exodus 12, 38 reminds us this, a mixed multitude also went up with them when they left Egypt, in other words. So all these people combined together are fresh from a pagan world, and 
because of the attraction of shiny things, world's full of shiny things. Paul said that these are the things that really easily entangle us. They trip us up. And because these things trip us up and they're really shiny and we're drawn to them, the earlier agreement that they made with God is so new and it's so evident that they are not truly committed to purging these shiny things from their life, that they really are attached to them. So it seems, if I'm reading this right, that Moses is intent on helping us to understand that there's something going on here under the surface. And the something that's going on is that the, the people conveyed to come against Aaron. Look with me on the screen, Exodus 32, 1. The people assembled about Aaron. The word assembled there, and I'm, mind you, I'm not excusing his actions, but this is a Hebrew expression that's only used three other times in Moses' writings. And it actually, the verb that's used there is describing someone who's coming against an opposition. So when it says they assembled against him, they're coming against him, it appears, as they crowd around him, it's actually a mob scene. So the people are gathered in hostility, if I'm reading this right, against Aaron, and they're pressuring him to go in a new direction. And Aaron can't take the stress. And so he caves. And all these circumstances combined tell me that it's partly that he's acting out of fear for his own life and partly out of desire for social acceptance. He wants the approval of the crowd. And one of the ways that we fall into sin, we know this is true in our day today, one of the ways that we fall into sin is when we yield to what's popular instead of what's right. When a large group of people begin saying, this is the way society should go, you find it's really hard to push back against that, which is the very reason that spiritual leaders have to have an uncompromising conviction when it comes to theology and following God's Word. Because today, like never before, I know this is not news for you, this is not a news flash, but today, like never before, churches are being pushed to compromise the Word of God so that people will not get offended. I personally never want to be part of a church that will compromise the Word of God. How about you? Let's not. So there's things that are offensive about the Bible. And Aaron had an opportunity to step back and say, no. But Aaron's not taking this opportunity to lead his people and to teach them sound theology. He's bailing. He's bailing on his responsibility. And when culture shifts, and when culture tries to reinterpret God's Word for personal desire, it is extremely dangerous. R.C. Sproul is a, we would call him a dead theologian, not an old dead theologian, but he's been gone a few years now. But I really value his speaking and his writing. He wrote this back in 1997. Thought you'd like to see this. His quote is, the cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or injustice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent, but at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. Verse 1 says, we want you to make us a God who will go before us. Now, this is a Hebrew idiom. It's essentially saying we need somebody to lead us. We want a leader with the emphasis here on protecting us against our enemies as you lead us into battle because we're headed for the promised land. 
Now, church, just ask yourself, how could they not be satisfied with God? He's gone before them in a pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They've received all the food, all the water. The Red Sea was open. They've watched the mountains shake. How could they not be satisfied? Well, the answer is partly because of the passage of time and partly because they're trying to merge the God of the Bible with the culture of the day. They're trying to merge Yahweh with an Egyptian bull. But mostly, it's a matter of something that continues to be a hurdle for society today. They're failing to see that our physical world is actually controlled by the spiritual world. And that's why God demanded that they believe in Him without any graven images. That's why the very first commands say, you will not make any images of me. You will believe in me. There's a spiritual world that you can't see around you that controls the physical world. But we recognize as humans, it is so much easier to believe in something that can actually be seen. So in context, this is really indicating there's a really deep dissatisfaction with God. And in the absence of Moses, Israel feels that they're not being protected. And, and they want protection to get to the promised land. They want something that will lead them, something visible. And Egypt had its cobras, and Rome one day is going to have its eagles, and all the other nations have gods they bow down to, so we need something. Verse 2, Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took them, this from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, and, and you almost can't believe you're reading this, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, Aaron responds by making the only kind of God, small g, that he knew, and he makes it in the shape of a bull, a calf an Egyptian-style calf. I told you when we were working through the book of Exodus in the early chapters that Hathor was regarded as the god of Egypt who was in the form of a cow with a cow's head. And then Isis, she had the horns of a cow. So there's multiple images of cows in their worship of gods, small g. But the, the pinnacle of the gods of worship at that time was Apis. And, and that one was a symbol of a bull who was so powerful, it demonstrated all kinds of power and virility. Now, these former slaves have no wealth whatsoever. So this gold that they're using here, it's obviously part of the plunder that they brought out of Egypt. When, when they received all the goods and all the, the booty, if you will, from that nation. And Aaron takes it, melts it down, and makes it into a molten calf. Umberto Casuto is a, a really brilliant scholar who wrote a lot about the Old Testament, not a believer in Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, he died without ever professing Christ. But he wrote this in 1967 because he was an expert on these things. He said this, first they would make a wooden model and then overlay it with a plating of precious metal in order to sculpture the finest details on the gold plating, such as the eyes, the hair, and the like, artistic work required a sharp and delicate instrument, namely a graving tool, which is exactly what you see Aaron doing in that passage, making it exquisitely detailed. 
So this new young bull is the symbol of virility and power among them. And upon the completion of it, they have the audacity to say, this is your God. This is the one that led you out of Egypt. Verse chapter 32, this is your God, O Israel. And, and it's, as, it's, it's as if now, finally, finally God can be properly worshiped. Finally, we've got something that we can see, we can lay our eyes on. Now we're like all the other nations. We've got something that's going to go before us. We have a proper God. We have improved on God. That's the mindset between the syncretism that's going on here. So verse 5, now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And notice it's all capitalized there. That means he's using the word Yahweh there. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, which is an utter and total violation of the first commandment and the second commandment. And which says, God says, I'm the Lord your God. You'll have no other gods before me. And by the way, don't make any graven images of me. Now, typically, an altar was made out of stone, out of earth stone, field stone. And it was out of clay, dirt that was put together. And then Aaron does that. And then he builds this feast as a celebration of Yahweh with this altar that's built in front of this golden calf. And the syncretism is that they're trying to meld God together with this symbol, this golden idol. And I'm wondering to myself as I'm working through this over the last few weeks, how confused are the children of this nation at this point? How confused are the teenagers? They just heard their parents 40 days earlier say, we're going to obey you no matter what you call us to do. We've heard you and we obey. And 40 days later, they're doing this, and this isn't the worst. Look with me again. Verse 6, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And to play is captured in a Hebrew verb. It's talking about sexual orgies, sexual sport. It's the exact same phrase that's used in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis when Joseph is accused of rape. And Potiphar's wife says, my husband brought this Hebrew slave into our house to make sport of me. The exact same phrase, sport, is used here, sexual deviance. There's crude and obscene and X-rated behavior going on here, and we need to be reminded in this day and age that untruth, false truth, gives license to immorality. It's exactly what you see going on here. They're no longer even worshiping their false god at this point. This false god that set them free, now they're partying like it's 2023. I didn't intend for that to rhyme, but it did. <laughs> they think they've been set free. Now they can do whatever they want. Now they're deciding we're going to party. So Aaron not only shapes this bull, but apparently he did such a really good job to the degree that the people say, this is our God. This is the one that actually led us out of Egypt. This is the one that brought us on the Exodus. And they have now successfully linked the attributes of the God of creation 
with this God, small g, made into the form of a golden bull. And Yahweh is now made into a graven image. So that triggers something in verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. If you've ever wondered if God is aware of what we're doing on planet earth, there it is. Remember chapter 32. Is God omniscient? If you think that God is omniscient, say amen. If you're new to church or you haven't heard that word before, omniscient means all-knowing. Is God all-knowing? Absolutely. Scripture says right there. He knows exactly what's going on. Moses doesn't understand what's going on, but God knows exactly what's going on. Now, to be fair, a significant number of people won't read about these things in the Old Testament because of passages like this. I just had somebody say this to me this last week. I don't like to read the Old Testament because it's got angry God all over it. And so when they come across passages and they see that God's anger burned against them, they would say, he really does seem unmerciful. Yet let me point out to you very quickly that this is the same God who mercifully prepared Moses for this very occasion. And I want you to hear me out on this. God has just said to Moses, leave me alone, Moses that my anger may burn against them. Why would God do that? To test Moses. See, he already knows because he's omniscient, he knows exactly what Moses' response is going to be in this setting. So God has set Moses up for a test. Now to be very, very clear, this nation, Israel, has apostatized themselves. Apostasy means to depart from that which you knew. They've apostatized from the truth. They've had revealed truth, they've had God's word explained to them, they heard it audibly, and they've seen all the events, and yet they have chosen to reject it. So apostasy. What they really want is a God who will let them have what they want, to let them live as they want to live. So they're really still very Egyptian at heart, and we get it. Old habits are hard to break, right, church? They are. So because old habits are hard to break in times of stress, people often go backwards, often go back to what's familiar. And it is so easy to revert to the things that we're familiar with, especially the things that we grew up with. They're comfortable. These people do exactly that. They're so wedded to the culture that they came out of, they're justifying in their minds a false religion even though that false religion was proven to be false, when they watched the 10 plagues unleashed on Egypt, they understood that none of those gods of Egypt could protect Egypt. They understood who the real true living God is, but they want what they want when they want it. So God has said in verse 10, now leave me alone, Moses. He's challenging Moses because you would think this through and say, Moses has no power to stop God. He could squish them in a second. 
He doesn't have to ask for Moses' permission here. Moses can't stop God from doing anything. So what you find here is God is actually inviting Moses to intercede. Therefore, he's testing Moses because God has just announced his intention and allowed Moses to respond to that intention. So he's inviting intercession because if God did the things that he's threatened here, he'd be replacing the original promise that he made to Abraham. What did he tell Abraham? I'm going to make you into a great nation. We can't make him into a great nation if you're going to wipe these people out. So he's testing Moses' commitment to the plan to make Abraham into a great nation. Keep going with me. Also remember, Moses doesn't know what's going on down below. He just knows parts of it. Verse 11, then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. So he does appeal to God exactly as God expects him to do. God knew that he was going to do that, and he does it with three really solid arguments. Watch verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. I think we would all agree it is certainly not necessary to remind God of anything. It's not as though he has a short memory. It's not as though he forgets. But Moses has a limited understanding of what's actually unfolding. But here comes verse 14, and it causes so many people, especially in our generation, to trip up. Watch verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind. And I put it in brackets so that you understand. There's more going on here than what you think is going on here. The Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. And I put it in brackets. You could easily put these words in there. The Lord relented. Or if you have a King James Version, the old version say, the Lord repented. My wife has told me that I have a habit when I get news that I don't like. And the, new, the habit that I have is um, I will draw a big breath and I will sigh without saying anything. And then inadvertently she'll say to me, what's the problem? And I typically will say to her, how did you know? And then she'll say, because you just sighed. And I'm not even aware that I sighed. But drawing that big breath in and sighing back out. The word sighed could be put right here. So the Lord sighed about what was going on. The Lord relented. The Lord repented. The Lord changed his mind. The Lord sighed is used 38 times in the Old Testament. So it's not like this is a one-off, this is a one-time happening thing. So we do have to deal with it. Is God actually change his mind? And a lot of people in society would like to think this God does change his mind. God's relenting is an anthropomorphism. Big $15 word in the Bible, right? An anthropomorphism is when we give human attributes to something that we can't explain. We do it all the time. Your car breaks down. You want to say if you're in the middle of a road when it breaks down, stupid car. Well, it's not stupid because it's a car. 
and it has no intellect. Well, I know cars are smart, but right? we, we attach human emotions to things all the time. This is an anthropomorphism here, a description of God whom we don't understand in human terms. And so from a human viewpoint, God went in another direction. But from God's viewpoint, He always already knew the direction that He was going. God never desired to destroy this people. But from a human perspective, God relented. God sighed. God went in another direction. If you want to resolve this issue, if you're wrestling over this, understand it this way. Jesus, the Christ, must come from the line of Judah. It was prophesied hundreds of years earlier. Jacob on his deathbed said, Judah, from you the scepter will never depart. We understood that Jesus was born exactly from the line of Judah. But if God wipes out Israel, He wipes out the line of Judah. Therefore, what was planned from the foundation of the earth could never be fulfilled. And some rebels in the desert cannot thwart that which God planned from all eternity. Wrestle with that one if you want to. Let's go forward. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. And these two tablets are the most valuable things on planet Earth at that time. You could take all the palladium, all the diamonds, all the gold, all the silver, all the nickel, and combine it together, and it wouldn't be as valuable as what Moses is holding in his hands at this specific time. He's got the ten, and they've been engraved by God Himself. And there's two tablets, and one is the originator's copy, and one is the recipient's copy, and both of the tablets have all ten of the commandments on them, which was really common in the ancient world to make two copies of the document to preserve one for the originator and one for the recipients. So Moses has got both of them in his hand, and he's coming down the mountainside in verse 17. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp, verse 18. But he, meaning Moses, said, it is not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. Remember, Joseph, or Joshua, we saw in chapter 24, went up the mountain with Moses, and he's been hanging out a long time. He went up maybe halfway, and he's close enough to the camp, he can hear exactly what's going on. And he thinks because he's a war captain, there's a sound of war in the camp. However, he's mistaken. And Moses knows something that Joshua doesn't know because Moses has been forewarned, and he discerns the sound of rebellion. Literally written in the Hebrew language, the sound of answering. In other words, there's antiphonal singing. It's back and forth. It's being echoed to each other. So Moses is hearing this mixture of drunks singing and dancing and men as they chase women and women as they run from men and men fighting over women. And it's the sound almost like war in the camp. Check this, church. The blood of the covenant has barely had time to dry before they're dancing around this calf. Verse 19, 
It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel to drink it. Now earlier, Moses didn't know what Moses didn't know. He didn't know what was really going on there. And I'm thinking in this moment, just speculating, that when he walks into this environment, his response is, oh, I get it. Now I see. Remember Moses' attempt earlier was to try and deter God from unleashing wrath, but God knew the full story. And now when he personally sees what God already knew, now he understands how far they've gone, and he rages with the most valuable items on planet Earth, and he shatters them against the rocks. I want you to keep this in context. If this incident had not happened, how fortunate would we be in 2023 to still have the presence of the actual Ten Commandments that God engraved in stone, which is not unreasonable to think because all the carvings in stone from Babylon and from ancient Egypt, they still exist today. What have we been deprived of because of this moment? And then you begin to understand how severe this sin is that would cause him to do something so destructive to something so precious. And he's so enraged that he throws the tablets and shatters them to pieces. But there is much, much more going on than just anger here. In the ancient world, the violation of a covenant is known as the breaking of a covenant. He's literally breaking the covenant stones in front of them. So Keep thinking geographically where he's at. Moses is now at the base of the mountain. All the people came to the base of the mountain 40 days earlier to hear the word of God, to experience the thunder, the shaking of the earth, the smoke, the fire, and they heard the words of God. And now they've got the words of God in front of them. And Moses takes those and shatters them against the same rocks right where they stood 40 days earlier when they said, we will obey. We'll do everything that you're asking us to do. The breaking of a blood covenant comes with consequences. And God's wrath is going to be far more severe than just the anger of Moses. So the next thing Moses does is he does everything that he can to try and destroy the golden bull immediately and permanently. And because this idol is made likely over a wooden form, it can be burned. So he orders it to be burned with fire. And the result is it's got a bunch of coals on the ground, and he takes the coals, and they smash them into a powder. They throw the powder out over the water surface, and he makes sure that eventually all of Israel goes to that water source to drink, and it will go through their bodies, and not to be terribly graphic, but when it comes out the other side, it will be defiled and completely ruined and permanently unusable. So we come into verse 21. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself. They are prone to evil. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this man, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. 
of all the stupid excuses that have ever been used on planet Earth, that. Who would believe that? But back up to the opening statement. Aaron, what did they do to you? He's opening up the possibility that there's some kind of pressure that came against Aaron. He's really quick thinking. Apparently, Aaron knows that he's guilty of sin. So his response is absolutely despicable. Well, you know these people, Moses. And they said, what happened to Moses? And I said, I don't know. And next thing I know, out comes this calf. But the issue that Moses is pushing on is his leadership. It's a leadership issue in verse 21. He says, you led them, Aaron. You brought them to this place. So it's abundantly clear that Aaron has deliberately committed a flagrant violation. But his argument is, I was just a bystander. I didn't have anything to do with this, which is embarrassing and ludicrous and sad. Verse 25, now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, remember who's writing this, Moses writes this years later about this event that he's going through. He's the author of Exodus. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. Church, understand that loss of self-control is a very serious issue. The Bible says that self-control is actually a fruit of the Spirit. You can identify true Christ followers because they have control, self-control. But there's no self-control here. One of the remarkable characteristics of false teaching is that they glorify the loss of control. When you're out of control and controlled by the Spirit, well, then you're really, obviously, much more fulfilled. That's false. Scripture says you will be controlled. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So that leads into an understanding of what it means for them to be unrestrained here. Proverbs 29 talks about them casting off all restraints. In other words, they're ungovernable at this point. Proverbs 29, 18 actually reads this way. Where there is no vision, or in brackets you could put the word revelation, the people are unrestrained. What is revelation? Revelation of God's Word. Where God's Word isn't proclaimed, the people are unrestrained. Where God's Word is held back, the people become ungovernable. A nation or a people who have lost their way and have become out of control, not merely because they're rejecting God's Word, what we're being told is it's not even accessible to them. And when governments or churches withhold the Word of God, it leads to unbridled, unrestrained behavior. Moses sees this as a really serious issue. It's the most serious issue, but it's not the only one. There's another thing going on beyond the loss of self-control. There's no discipline, and they become an easy target for other nations to take them down. So they will be regarded as a joke among the other nations. 
So he says, you'll become a derision. You'll become a laughingstock. You're so embarrassing that they'd be the subject of jokes and whispers. Exodus 32 verse 25 says they are a derision among their enemies. So logically, decisive action has to be taken. And he challenges the people, whoever is for me, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. In the Hebrew language, it literally reads this way, whoever is for the Lord, to me. Very strict command, quite black and white, God being specific, speaking through Moses. And immediately the tribe of Levi rallies to him, but notice this, everyone in the entire nation is being given a chance. Every one of them has been offered the opportunity to repent and reestablish their loyalty to Yahweh. But not everyone decides to come back, but they've all been given the opportunity. And so in verse 27, he says this. He said to them, thus says the Lord, it's coming from God. Moses is the spokesman, but it's coming from God. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, dedicate yourselves to the Lord for every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. Let me just very quickly explain that last sentence. He's saying, you guys have shed blood today. You better go out and now dedicate yourself to God so that he will cleanse you. This is much like God dealt with David. That's not the bigger issue though. In our Western democracy, the idea of taking life especially of people who have abandoned God, is impossible to mentally justify because we are influenced by the New Testament. And that's why many individuals look at this and say, see right there, there's the angry God. That's the angry God of the Old Testament. And I am not in any measure suggesting that this action would be copied today as an example. The New Testament does not allow killing of people to preserve God's truth. Rather, what you need to do when you look at this is keep it in the context of time of what's going on. In the context of time, there is a crisis here, and this is a watershed moment for this reason. Understand that these people have been entrusted with the Word of God at a formative moment in history, and they have made a decision about God. They've been assigned as guardians of the truth the, the record of God's activities haven't even been fully recorded yet, and Satan yet has already moved among them to bring derision and destroy the work of God among these people. And that corruption, God is saying, has to be removed. So God is making it clear to Moses, I cannot allow this to continue. They will influence others away from the truth and others will lose out on eternal life because of them. So God's saying, I have a zero tolerance policy for this kind of behavior. Now, as you can imagine, I, I read volumes and volumes of works by other individuals, and over the last weeks, I kind of lost track of who actually wrote what's said here, so I've just listed it as unknown, but I thought it was a really valuable insight. Let me share this quote with you. God revealed that a light was underway, a fight was underway over saving truth. If the idolaters were allowed to continue, many people in ancient Israel would turn from saving truth, from the promise of eternal life with God to destruction in hell. 
And since Israel was the repository of God's saving truth at this time, allowing the idolatry to continue affected countless future generations. So Moses has just clarified for the masses. This isn't my word. This comes directly from God. And then the Levites go back and forth throughout the camp and they're systematically approaching every household and they're trying to find out who is for God and who is against God. And apparently the overwhelming majority of the millions say, we're with God, we repent. But 3,000 said, no way, we're out. We refuse to bow the knee to him anymore. We don't want his authority. And they fall in that day. Verse 30, this brings us to the end. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Check this, church. Even though the people have repented and have said, I'm sorry, there still needs to be atonement. There still has to be a price paid. Atonement is still needed. The covenant has been broken and intervention now is the only hope. So Moses attempts to ransom the people from judgment by offering a substitute. And he literally says to God, take me. I'm offering myself. I'll be the substitute. Take me so that they don't go. Moses is willing to die for his people. To put it more aggressively, he's willing to be damned if Israel can be saved. I wonder, could you do that? I have to ask myself when I read passages like that. I, I read that about Paul in the New Testament. Paul said, I would go to hell if I could save Israel. And the first time I came across that many years ago, I thought to myself, could I do that? Would I be willing to go to hell so that the population would be saved? Moses is saying, take me. And this is all the more remarkable when you consider that God had just said to him, I'll make a new nation out of you, Moses. Let's start over again. He's offered to have his name blotted out of the book of life, which reveals his identification with these people. And that tells you and I that he's starting to catch on. Moses has come a very, very long way from the burning bush incident. He understands that people need a substitute. Think about at the burning bush when he said, God, could you not just send somebody else? <laughs> I don't want these people. God says, no, you're going to be the guy. And now he's at this point where he's saying, I'll go to hell if I could save them. And we find him speaking to God in a way that he has never previously prayed. As a matter of fact, if you're one of those students of the Bible that happens to attend New Hope, I'd love it if you could show me if this kind of event ever happened anyplace else in the Bible. What we're seeing is intercession in which an individual recognizes, I'll offer myself as a substitute for someone else. I can't find it anywhere else before this moment in the Bible. But Moses misunderstands the cost that has to be paid for sin, and he cannot make an atonement for their sin. Now, notice Moses is not trying to minimize what they've done. He's being really blunt and very honest with God, and he states the specifics about what they've done. 
And then here comes what you do not expect and you would never see coming. Chapter 32, verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Moses has appealed to God for forgiveness of sin to giving up his own life in exchange for theirs, which is really, really noble. And God replies, I will not give eternal life to sinners. Moses, you're not qualified. Moses is not qualified to make an atonement. So God has just categorically refused his offer and says, whoever has sinned, I will blot them out of my book. And mistakenly, Moses thinks that he can intervene, and God is essentially telling him, you're not enough. As good as you are, Moses, you're not enough. Moses can't die for people's sin because he's also a sinner. And to atone for sin, you have to be perfect. And, and you might be asking yourself, okay, if Moses doesn't qualify, who does? Moses can't get you into heaven. Only Jesus Christ can get you into heaven. He's the only way. Jesus is the only one who could make atonement because he alone is without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin. God the Father made God the Son to be sin for us. Why? So that we would become the righteousness of God. But it has to be in him. So earlier in the Old Testament, we're very, very clearly seeing what we also find in the New Testament. Eternal life is not automatic. You don't get eternity in heaven just because you're born on planet Earth. You got sin on you. Sin is on your ledger. That sin has to be dealt with. The person who thinks they're getting into heaven with sin on their ledger will not succeed. And this becomes then one of the strongest statements in the Bible about our absolute need for a savior. This detail makes the entire story of chapter 32 completely, implicitly, and totally messianic. That's what chapter 32 is about. Moses, do you get it? You don't qualify. Verse 33 finishes it. Then the Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot him out of the book, my book, but now go lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. In other words, there were consequences and we're not told how they're smote, how he smited them. We just get that information that he did it and then eventually... He says, I will punish them. We understand what happened with the captivity in Babylon when they completely rebelled against God. But that's not how I want to close this. Here's how we should understand this. There are multiple places in Scripture that talk about a special book that's in God's possession, something that's in His presence right now. Revelation 20 mentions it multiple times, eight times, I think. Let me, let me show you just from chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. This is a book you definitely want your name in. You don't want your name blotted out of this book. 
So how do we understand this? In the ancient world, there were records of populations of regions and cities. Typically, the registration book was kept outside the city, sometimes within a chamber. And within that was a record of the individuals who lived within that city. If you think of a phone directory, if you're younger than 30, there used to be a thing called the Yellow Pages. And along with the Yellow Pages, advertising businesses, there were the White Pages. And the White Pages had the listing of all the people who lived in the region. Now think of your contact list in your phone. It's kind of like that. And, and it was a record of the people who were living in this region. And when someone was born or someone moved into the city, they would na- add their name to the book. When someone died, their name was removed. In other words, the dead were blotted out of the book. So for understanding this in context, the book that held the names of the living is called the book of life, and only the names of the living are found in it. And because the common understanding was so rampant, Paul didn't even need to explain it when he used it. Look with me on the screen, Philippians 4.3, my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. With this book of life as a record of those who are going into eternal life as opposed to those who reject God. If your name is in the book at judgment, you will live forever in heaven. Your name is in the book if you are in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can get you into that book. If your name is not in the book, you will be cast into hell. Your name has not been listed among the living. You cannot live within heaven's gates. So logically, a person hearing that would say, how do I get into that book? It is through Jesus Christ alone that eternal life is obtained. And that's why Jesus would say in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And because God is not willing that any would perish but that all would come to repentance, everybody has an opportunity to respond. Everybody can respond, but most are like the 3,000, and they reject, and they put off, and they forfeit the potential, and eventually the name has to be blotted out. So we're left with a choice this morning. You can either have your sin blotted out, or you can have your name blotted out. If your sin's blotted out by the work of Jesus Christ, you're into heaven. If your name is blotted out, you're going to hell. And that's why Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 10, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. So that means this whole ugly episode has been written down for our benefit so that we would learn from others so that if you're in Jesus Christ, you can speak into the lives of others because I guarantee in this auditorium and people watching on the broadcast right now, You represent thousands of people who need to know the answer about how to get to heaven. I'm going to pray right now that God would use you this week that way. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use every single one of us to be great representatives of your kingdom and that we would not be ashamed to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that we would speak boldly that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. And I do pray that you would put your blessing upon us for having been here this morning. Use this now effectively in our lives. And God, I pray specifically for any individual who might be here today that doesn't know you yet, that you would use this moment to bring them into the kingdom.
Show them, Father, that they can be forgiven and have new life in Jesus. I pray for this in the matchless name of our King and all God's people said, amen. If we haven't met yet, I'll be down in the front. Or if you'd like to talk about the things you heard this morning, come and see me. Otherwise, have a great week, New Hope.